Hey everybody, welcome to the Vox Podcast with Michael Leary and Timothy John Stafford, soon to be renamed, but none of you believe us, so it'll happen someday. When you least expect it, it will come like a thief in the night. Wow, there you go. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank a couple of people who have joined um, the the uh, support wagon. Um, I want to thank Karen and Lori and Stuart. I think Stuart is an old friend of mine from Mariner's Church. Um and maybe these uh, the the Karen and Lori are too. I don't know. But anyway, it is such it, it is such kindness that you do this and are willing to support us. It really is helpful and rewarding and allows us to do a whole heck of a lot. So thank you for that. Um yes. today we're going to get gombist. Now, uh-oh. Some say there is such a thing as too much gombist. We're not Who? there yet. Who says that? I don't know, but I'm sure somebody somewhere is saying His that. His wife. <laughs> he does talk about going on a, a little mini vacation while we're talking, and he said it's a gift to her that she uh, gets a break from him. <laughs> yes. Uh, but but we're talking about, uh, he wrote a book called Power and Weakness, and um, and I really encourage you to, we're going to give away seven copies um, on when this episode comes out, uh, go on Instagram or our Facebook page, the Vox Facebook page. And the first seven people who are in vocational ministry, um, is it seven? Uh, Cause it's the holy number. Yep. Cause that's how many copies he gave us, <laughs> which maybe is because it's the holy number, but, uh, Tim Stafford is going to get your info. Mike Erie will mail you those books and it will be glorious. So and, the first seven um, folks in vocational ministry, because it's a it's a very helpful text for yes. those now, who are... It's super helpful for people not in vocational yes. ministry in terms of evaluating leaders and churches. Yeah. Like, it is unbelievable. But, um, but particularly for those of us who... Um, who wrestle with the dynamics of organization uh, in a religious sense and have a vested interest in being professionally holy. So yeah. all that is to say, it's it's a great book. It is thick. It is Gombus. I mean, it's go- you're hearing Gombus talk when you're reading this thing. True. So it's, it's not... It's an audio book. You're, you're not just going to pick the thing up. He would be hilarious. Because he, yeah. he has such a... Um, a unique way of emphasis. Yes. You know what I mean? Like he'll, he'll yeah. just, he'll, he'll totally emphasize the second syllable of the last word of a sentence. <laughs> and, um, there's just a rhythm to it. I love it. All that is to say though, uh, let us know that we think this is super helpful. And the conversation really is helpful for people yeah. because, you know, for most of us, not all, for most of us, church is still a live thing. We're still thinking about it, even if we're not going regularly. We still have hopes and dreams for it. And had I, as a early 40-something several years ago, um, believed and understood and um, practiced what he's got in here, I would just be a I would just be a totally different person. Hmm. And as he says, it's not we're not picking on pastors. We are we are questioning the system in which pastoral ministry is done and what it values and prioritizes. Yeah, and so he does a really good job 
of of calling some of that into question in a way that's invitational yet kind of ruthless. Yeah, and it's not like it's an ejection seat. It's more of a hey, we can we can do better at this. We can change this. It's yeah, not a... Paul, Paul, and he uses Paul. It's Paul had modes of ministry that are very similar to American modes of ministry, and then right. Paul met Jesus and reconfigured <laughs> all of those. Yeah. And so he's asking the natural questions about, okay, what, how do you do image maintenance um, when, uh, when you follow a crucified, shame, shamed Savior? You know yeah. what I mean? So it's just, it's really, really good stuff. Tim, though, shockingly is troubled. What? Yep. Tim is troubled. And so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, another edition, yet again, of Tim's Troubled Times. Tim, Tim, what troubles you? Man, I, I, what troubles me is that I, I was texting my friend, and I'll just say that I'm sorry, Joey, because I, I text him um, too many videos and links of, especially there's a, a mega pastor in our area, and I think I've just been living so much in negative energy. <laughs> like I just realized that I just like am constantly mm. sending, but the. The aggressive. It was interesting to read Gombus's stuff because it relates so much to this aggressive, um, this aggressive. Uh, so this other pastor masculine was manifesting. Pastor. Yeah, yeah, and you're seeing that. And the reason it really troubles me is because he, um, a lot of my students go to his church, Young and life they're being students. formed. Or, well, no, my or students at the college. Yeah, uh. and they're being formed by this aggressive. Um, this aggressive theology that is uh, ostracizing a lot of people, both theologically, but also um, like socially, like Mm. causes for people of color and causes for people who are being, um, trying to choose all my words so carefully, people who are being, um, you know, ostracized by the church. And Mm. he's spewing this rhetoric from the pulpit, all over social media, this, you know, we're not going to take it anymore attitude, riling up um, young minds to this, like, hateful theology, and it keeps me up at night, you know, Um, because I just keep going down the rabbit hole watching his sermons or Instagram rants, and um, and it hurts my (laughs) insides, and it's not healthy um, or productive, um, but man, does it rile me up. Reading uh, Gomez's stuff and then the conversation that you guys are all about to listen to, just kind of in a lot of ways, it, it feels that more because I'm just, you see Paul pick it apart and then to watch it happening in real time and watching it affecting all these 20 something, you know, 19, 20 year old kids that I am working with is, it's hard to, the path of humility you know, when the loudest voices aren't humble and, uh, or, 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 you know, preaching, there's no sense of humility and they're not preaching from a place of service, but of domination. Um, you know, it's, it's this, it's this war rhetoric. Um, yeah. And this, the conversation of how to produce, how to, uh, give wings to a counter narrative is so 
hard in this world. I want to present a counter-narrative to my community, to my town, to my city, you know, to these college students, to my children and my children's friends. And I want people to see, um, you know, the yeah. counter-narrative of, of, of who Jesus is and not this right. dominance, not this domineering theology of over, over, of yeah. overtaking. Yeah. So I'm trying and to figure Paul, that out. Yes, because Paul certainly does go after right. other other leaders, right? I mean, I think most famously of Peter <laughs> and uh, in Galatians. Like, that's kind of a big deal. And then he, and then he writes about it to the Galatians. Right. Um, or he, he, yeah, I mean, it's, but, but as Gombus talks about, there are social dynamics at play that Paul is calling out. So we, what we want to do, or at least what I want to do, is I want to call him out for being a jerk and an, and, and a, what's our word? A ding dong and an asshat. <laughs> and, um, and, and just for, for failing to represent Jesus at all in, in the way his, he's supposedly doing Jesus's work. Uh, and I and I think that there's a place for that, of course, but I think there's deeper social dynamics between churches and systems and platforms and authority that that Gombus and Paul would also go after. You mm. know what I mean? So in one sense, this this person is a symptom of the rot. Um, that that yes, we can st- stamp out symptoms all over the place, but that doesn't go at what's really going on there. Yeah. So, so, and I'm with you, man. I, I can spend so much time feeding my cynicism. There's just so much. I mean, I, you just, you know, type in horrible pastors and, <laughs> and none of them are me. So, you know, and then, and then it's like, I got to show you guys how horrible this jackhead is. And, uh, you yeah. know, you're just like, yep. So there, so yes, I join you in your trouble. Um, I have to guard my, my cynicism. I have yes. to guard that as a spiritual discipline. I do. Yeah. And because um, otherwise, I'm 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 just so with you in the. It's so it's so hard. It's so hard. The cynicism burns and it get it makes you. But like I said, like it's so hard to figure out how to crack that nut of the counter narrative. Like yeah, if many of the churches up here in my area. Not all, but a lot of are really pushing this this one version of Jesus that doesn't seem in any way cruciform, to use some terms that we will soon get into here. But um, it's just, it's really, it's all I've been thinking about lately, and it's driving me nuts. It's driving me bananas. So, B-A-N-A-N-A-S. So, Tim's Troubled Times... We're, we're troubled. Um, and the great, I mean, I, I, I just think it's great that this ties exactly into what, what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Because the counter narrative will never be as compelling as that narrative. It wasn't right. for Paul. Paul, I mean, Paul's letters to the Corinthians are a case study in, particularly 2 Corinthians, here are the dynamic super apostles who are awesome. And Paul isn't, and he's losing his church to these. Mm. And, um, and so this, there is no counter narrative that can compete in the same terms. Um, and, and, 
right? Because then we're just perpetuating the same cycle, yep. just with a different righteous end. Right. Um, and so the invitation, I think, is to well, what happens if we have a thirty-person um, little little group that that habituates themselves towards habits of newness, yeah, a new creation. Is that is that enough? Is that good? Is that impact? Yeah. Are those all the wrong questions? You know. Right. That's the that's the that's the thing that's been troubling me the most. Is that the right question? But then I talk to my students and I hear them say things and I'm like, ah, maybe it is the right question. I don't know. I don't know. So Tim's Troubled Times leaves leaves us unresolved. Let's go get gombist. Is a good thing. Yes. Yes. So into this uh, <laughs> non-resolution steps, gombis. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, have we got a doozy today? A doozy. Yep. <clears throat> doozy is two O's, and that's appropriate <laughs> because there is an O crud factor to the material <laughs> the we are O's. covering today. We need all the O's we can get. Uh, we are today <laughs> We are today with our friend Tim Gombas, Dr. Timothy G. Gombas. The, the G is for what? George. That's right. You done with TGG? Yes. <laughs> and... Um, we should just call him Dr. Gigi. That kind of has like a, no, a real sophisticated ring to it. <laughs> yeah. um, today with Dr. Gigi. Well, and today he he is full on doctor. He has a button down with a V-neck sweater over it. <laughs> and he was wearing glasses. This is as dressed up as it gets. Yes. Clean shaven. I mean, we haven't seen. Yeah. We have not seen the good doctor's face. This is a big deal. I mean, I felt like I had to step it up, you know, <laughs> kind of come in here with you guys. Just for today. Just for today. I like that. I like that. And um, and off air, uh, Tim was telling us about how Mr. Gombas vacations. My, my van's on. Oh, he's got vans. Okay, it's that not, cancels it out. It's still casual. It's 40-something 40, it's 40 hip is what we're looking at right now. Um, and so off air, Tim was telling us how he vacations. And and if you've if you've been uh, uh, following our podcast, we've had Doctor Gombas is a bit of an onion in the sense that there are these layers that are totally unexpected. And so, <laughs> one one of my personal favorite layers that we have referenced multiple times is that he goes to bed around seven or eight o'clock at night, wakes up at two or three, goes for a two hour ten mile walk to just think. Comes comes home, eats a breakfast, and then goes on with his day. And so he just told us he was on vacation. That's a rough sketch. And uh, yeah, um, it is a rough sketch for those of us who lack that sort of focus. Um, he told us he was just on vacation. We said, oh, where did you go? And Dr. Gamba says. Tucson. Why? I didn't tell, I didn't tell anybody. Okay. So this is like, it's just you two guys are the only ones that know, and my wife. That's it. And a couple of friends. I didn't tell anybody. Did now you, a few others. Did you take your wife? No. What did you do? She had a vacation from my presence. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, I, love, I love West Michigan. I love it here. I love living here. But. A thousand reasons. But. But. In about late February, early March, I, I have to leave. I got to get out of here. You got to. And everything's 
all the beautiful snow is like brown and gray. Yeah. It's just ugly. It's gross. Yeah. And uh, the last three years I've had um, this really great place out in Phoenix, uh, the missional training center. I've taught for them a couple times in March and the other times I've just gone out there by myself to watch spring training baseball. And this year I wasn't lined up to teach, but also it was hard to get, it was a little bit harder to get tickets, but I just thought I got to go to the desert. I'm it. just, I'm out of here. So I just went to, T I've never been to Tucson. I thought I would just check it out. And uh, yeah, I was there for like eight days. I took walks. I had good Mexican food and um, that's about it. I mean, this just is, walk this and eat and read. Your... I read out in the sun for a while, read a couple of like, excellent books and just chilled out. This is by, this is by yourself. Yeah. This is what time were the walks as early as they are um, in yeah. Michigan? Were they, were they that early? Cause it's up I'll on the plateau, right? Of three thirty, yeah, about three thirty. I go out, and it's a little. I mean, I know my area, so it's all good. But like when you're out at three thirty in Tucson, it's like that's a lot of coyotes. Like, yes, it's quiet and it's freaky. I mean, the noises are just very different, and it's in a a big valley, so it's like you hear all these distant animals. And the people I stayed with said there were like packs of javelina around, and it's like I don't know. It just kind of gets your attention. <laughs> I like it. I love it. Oh, so you were with people, though. Well, I mean, I stayed at an Airbnb. Okay, okay. I didn't talk to them very much, though. No, of course, of course not. Limited and... social interaction is my way to go. <laughs> Tim knows what I'm talking about. I got and you. Totally. I was going to say, oh. we, can, you, we can go vacation together because I won't talk to you the whole time. Yeah. And I'm perfectly okay with it. Yeah, what's there to say? <laughs> no. Nothing to say. All I do all day long is say, 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 say. Yeah. The only All wow. you got to talk about is like, all right, where's the... What's the second best Mexican place? Because we went to the first one last night. <laughs> yes, right, yeah. Let's go sit there and chill out. Yeah. So don't talk. What do you, don't I talk. do that in Joshua Tree. I was, I was going out to Joshua Tree and spending... You can camp out there and it's dead quiet. There's no light pollution. And you're in like weird Dr. Seuss territory with the trees. It's like yeah. everything's an alien landscape. It's beautiful. That's so cool. Yeah, you yeah, guys are I mean, early you guys in the morning. Are abnormal. A lot of stars, and you can watch. I saw a shooting star. Hear the coyotes. It's just, yeah, interesting experience. The I don't think I've ever gotten up at three thirty. I think I've just stayed up to embrace three thirty. But I don't think I ever fell asleep before that and said, "Oh, three thirty seems like a good time to wake up <laughs> right now." Um, I but feel that, like nine o'clock, nine thirty comes. I'm like, I'm the day's over. I'm done. What's and I just want it end, to end, and I wake up with a fresh mind <laughs> early in the morning, and you've got hours to just read and quiet. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Love so it. I, we've probably gone far too long, but it just fits the pattern of life that we have observed in our friend Tim, and um, it's perfect. It just, of course, we're going to Tucson at 3.30 in the morning, and we're walking with the coyotes. <laughs> Of course we are. Of course, yeah. we're not talking to anybody. We're going to Mexican by ourselves, probably reading while we're eating or not. Yeah. And um, and just loving best. it. Loving it. Best. The best. <laughs> Did you call anybody while you were away? Uh, I may have had a conversation with a friend. Okay. Uh, okay. Texted a little bit with my with Sounds my exhausting. Wife, but Sounds exhausting. But it's okay. like, I think I texted with my son. I didn't yeah. want to tell. I told my kids where I was, 
but that's about it. Like just nobody needs to know. My coyotes. Yeah, in case <laughs> someone finds know. my carcass, <laughs> you know, on a lonely canyon road. <laughs> There's just a beard and a Cubs cap just sitting there. Yeah. How do we explain this? So, so Timothy has um, uh, written a book that we we've covered bits and pieces of this, but my goodness, the book is called Power in Weakness, and it's Paul's transformed vision for ministry, and it is to use a word, a doozy of a book. It is, um, it, 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 it simply calls into question the entire orientation of pastoral ministry and church in the Western world by simply pointing out the way Paul did things. <laughs> and, and it, it's the exact opposite of everything that we value, do, structure in America. And so it is incredibly beautiful and incredibly challenging. And if you are in vocational church work, or um, if you're a, a pastor or a teacher or whatever, I so highly recommend this. We're going to do some giveaways uh, at the end of the episode. Um, and, uh, and and so we'll send out some free copies, but my goodness, it's wonderful. And any excuse to talk to Tim as he's unshorn, dressed up, and fully, rejuven- fully rejuvenated from his exile in the desert <laughs> is a good day. So, so uh, Tim, I've called you Timothy. I've called you Doctor. I've called you Dr. Tim, Dr. Gombas, Dr. G, Dr. Gigi. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> all of these informalities. Um, you, you... You're very welcome. what what did what were you seeing out in the church in pastoral ministry that caused you to to find this uh an interesting topic man that's a great question um i think that um yeah I, i man i gotta think about that I think that I was uh, noticing a number of destructive dynamics that were at work in pastors and pastoral situations. And I don't, uh, I try not to like ever blame pastors or like go at pastors because um, I'm not a pastor. I've been in variety of pastoral sort of positions and roles, but man, I just, I couldn't do it. I know what it takes and I know how taxing it is and I really couldn't do it. But um I think the problem is the structure, like the, the, the structures of pastoral ministry elicit from pastors a lot of destructive dynamics and impose on pastors a lot of destructive dynamics. Mm. It's, you know, and it, it's like people, pastors are these great people that get into ministry, many of them. There are a handful of sociopaths out there, but yeah. pastors get into ministry because they love God and they love God's people, but the structures just are become very oppressive. And I think what I was seeing was um, years and years ago, uh, like everyday Christians could flourish and were called to flourishing and called to be, um, you know, loving and uh, participate fruitfully in community. But it seemed to come at such a great cost to pastors, pastors' marriages, pastor's spouses, pastor's kids. It's like there's there's almost like this sacrifice that has to be paid for pastors to really thrive and serve their church as well. And that's terrible. Like that's, that's a sign that something's wrong. Right, right. Like if, if, if there has to be like a sacrificial lambs 
for churches to flourish. I, m- I remember this is just like years ago. I just thought something's wrong with this and I don't know what it is. I can't get at it. And then seeing how, um, um, a long time ago. So like probably 25, 23 years ago, I remember coming across that passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples about what leadership is like in the church or, you know, if, if anybody wants to be the greatest, you know, be the least, and then Jesus is talking about how you see how the leaders of the Gentiles do what they do. They lord it over uh, people they rule over, but it should not be this way among you. And I just, that, that contrast was so striking to me. Like leadership among God's people should be completely different from how it is in the wider world. Okay. Just, just that thought. And yeah, that, then that, re- that thought, I'm sorry to interrupt you, goes against everything I was taught growing up in Megatron. Yes. Land. I was going to say, like, it's like you go into the resource shop for pastoral ministry, and it's like basically business leadership principles with, you know, illustrations from the Gospels or something like that. Because like, they would say, they would say leadership's leadership. It doesn't matter yes. if it's sacred or secular. Totally. And it's, um, and so why is that wrong? Then I saw how that worked out. Mm. So I would see um, pastors when I was an intern at like a mega church back in the 90s. And I saw behind the scenes of like how pastors enjoy privileges and how like (laughs) the role of money in in, in a mega church and in really churches of any size, money is always an issue. Yeah. And and how, you know, pastors ended up talking about uh, about people. sort of evaluating people with regard to how much uh, social prestige or financial power they had. And it was like inevitable because the structure invited us all to evaluate people according to those standards. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, James has stuff to say about this. Yeah, Jesus has stuff to say about this. And it directly contradicts everything that we're talking about. Um, so I kind of started to see the role that power played throw that prestige played, uh, seeing competition on a ministry staff, people being right. destructively competitive with each other. Um, and just realizing there's a lot of, you know, ministry envy and ministry jealousy and um, church envy and church jealousy toward that church across town. And the feeling that when things are going well in that ministry, I'm hurting. That's hurting yeah. me. That's a strike at me. Or when things are going well game. in that church, then it's, it's like a, comes at a cost to me. And I just thought there's all kinds of corrupted values that are going on here. Like, what is, what's the deal? So over the last 20 years or so, getting more and more of a grip on what, on the dynamics in Paul and how he carried out his ministry. It's like there, his vision and his practice is so subversive to the way that we have fallen into doing things. Yeah. And then seeing that like there was a time before his conversion, where he actually did have a ministry mode that was shaped by his cultural context of power, prestige, and all that kind of stuff, which that's what, uh, and you know, N.T. Wright helped me see that in his book, What St. Paul Really Said, and um, the light turned on. I just thought, my goodness, we have fallen into a mode of doing ministry that matches perfectly with Paul before his conversion. Like, and that's a problem. <laughs> Right. That's a what major was, problem. Right. And so the first, I don't know, three chapters or so deal with that conversion of not just Paul's 
you know, recognition of who Jesus is, but Paul's recognition of resurrection and calling and vocation and all those sorts of things, even sinner, what, what it means to be a sinner. So how would you briefly characterize Paul's mode of ministry before his conversion? Yeah, what's interesting is that um, his his ultimate goal was the same. Yes. So he, he wanted, that was going to be the focus of the book when I first started out was just resurrection. <clears throat> his whole aim as a Pharisee was to bring about resurrection life on earth, which is the, the blessing and flourishing presence of God among God's people. But he was trying to do it through uh, coercion, like coercion of God's people, um, trying to coerce them into adopting what he envisioned as like a godly way of uh, following Torah. And that was all in an effort to sort of so impress God with his own efforts, but also by producing a people zealous for Torah that God would actually bring about resurrection realities on earth, like restore Israel, bring salvation as Paul then understood and all that kind of stuff. And he talks about uh, in Galatians, how he was advancing in Judaism, Mm -hmm. which he means a zealous form of Judaism far beyond all his contemporaries. So like he's in competition with his fellow ministers. Yep. He's using verbal violence uh, actual physical violence as well, yeah. which you don't see a lot of in our churches, but probably sometimes. And that reflects, I mean, I have seen pastors berate congregations and shame them or like cajole them or coerce them or condemn them or pastors or people in ministry condemn or coerce, uh, you know, individuals just in an effort to sort of try to produce the yeah. kind of church that they feel would genuinely be pleasing to God. And Paul is also wrapped up in um, pursuit of credentials, which he talks about in Philippians 3, um, trying to kind of orient and create a sort of earthly social um, image that would so impress people that people would think that he's this godly person, hoping that that's the same way that, uh, you know, that, that would be the same opinion God would have when he met God on the day of the Lord. Right. To establish a claim for personal participation in resurrection. Right. Um, and, I think- and the problem, and the problem in Paul's mind, keeping Israel from resurrection, bro- more broadly conceived than just life after death, but restoration and yeah. uh, national significance. Uh, and the problem was that Israel was filled with sinners. Yes. Yeah, totally. There's um, fellow Israelites who are not zealous for Torah the way Paul was. Right. Fellow Israelites who had grown lax in Torah observance and uh, people who are not as committed to God and God's glory as he was. And um, yeah, they are the problem. And Jesus became a problem. In yes. fact, um, during Jesus's earthly ministry, I think it's very likely that Paul is actually among a group of Pharisees that are like checking him out, listening in on what he's all about, hmm. probably suspending judgment as far as is he a genuine agent of national renewal from God, he probably suspended his judgment until Jesus is hung on a cross. I mean, and then Deuteronomy 21 comes to his mind and he knows that God's verdict is cursed as everyone who's hung on a tree. So obviously this person's cursed by God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the early Christian movement is basically expanding the number of sinners in Israel further preventing God from bringing about salvation. So 
Yeah, his opinion about Jesus is that, and Christians, is that they are sinners and high-handed sinners against the one true God for what they're doing, following this person that God has cursed. So when he actually sees uh, the exalted Jesus on the throne, um, like the radical reversal in his imagination must have been absolutely profound because like you can just see all the things fall into place. Like this person whom he had evaluated as a sinner, according to the Bible's clear teaching. I mean, it's so obvious. <laughs> right. Somehow God had vindicated the claims of Jesus and basically said, you know, the, the one who's at the center of the, of the work of God in the world is this person that Paul's own way of life had condemned as a sinner. So Paul's whole pursuit, he's got to call into question. His whole mode of trying to produce on earth God's blessings, that whole thing has to be called into question. You know, human effort, coercing, coercing other humans, coercing God, violence, force, anger, frustration with people, mm-hmm. you know, competition, all of those things. Co- yep. Yes. Yeah. All that has to be called into question. Right. And so, and, and one of the things you draw out that I love is how Paul goes from defining himself over and against sinners to being foremost among them and sharing in their low, their, their low status claims, right? Yeah. He's a slave of the gospel. He's a, which I find super, super fascinating. Yeah, totally. It's like if, if the one who is Lord of all uh, was hung on a tree, was ashamed, bloodied, disrobed corpse hanging on a tree um, was shamed and ostracized and died alone, rejected by everybody. Then you are a person's claim to be a faithful um, servant of that figure has to have a life that matches that kind of life. So Paul is um, sees that ornamenting his life with impressive credentials, impressive social credentials, keeps him like distances himself from the exalted Lord. Mm. So he's got to, or it's his privilege to ornament his life with the credentials of shame. So him being in prison puts him one step closer to Jesus. Right. Him being having incarcerated person on his resume puts him closer to Jesus and closer to the resurrection power that Jesus's presence brings. So, yeah, he, it's really, I, I honestly, I knew that I would find a number of like socially shameful identity markers in Paul's letters, but I was even over the last like year or two when I was doing that, I was really shocked. Yeah. Like, um, hmm. you know, being a wet nurse, hmm. being a mother in labor, um, you know, being a, yeah, a nursing mother, all the, it's really incredible how he pictures himself, how he postures himself and his apostleship. When I heard my whole life, authority, apostolic authority. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like it's this high, it's this high flying status. Whereas for him, he takes all kinds of pains to put himself in the lowest possible social location. So, right. There's a lot of projection and projection of our own hopes in the ways that we talk about Paul, which is really tragic. No, it's so, so true. And the way he makes himself peer to his ministry partners, whereas before yeah. his conversion, he would never have done that. Yeah, totally. I Again, it's really surprising to go through the letters 
and to find the many places where it's Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus writing of this letter. Yeah. And we just, and we just like, we forget about his colleagues, but he's always thinking in terms of colleagues and always thinking, always um, writing these letters as like group projects, <laughs> situating himself <laughs> alongside his partners. And it's right. not like, it's not like they're Paul's ministry team and he's the senior pastor. It's, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, really, totally. um, there's no difference between him and Apollos and Epaphroditus and Silas and, and Timothy and Titus. They're all, they're all partners and they're all co-servants, <laughs> co-slaves, co-laborers, co-soldiers. Yeah. All the language is partnership. Whereas before, his conversion, um, yeah, he is outstripping all his contemporaries. I mean, he's yeah wrapped up in that pursuit of competition, right? And and it's funny that he lets he lets us in on how good he would have been had he continued playing that game. You know what yeah, I mean? Like we get, a, we get a little gift of his resume, <laughs> and it's pretty tight. Seriously, there's nobody who would be an you know somebody who is like the inner circle of the inner circle. I mean, he, yeah, he had built the most impressive resume. And it's crazy that in that passage in Philippians 3, once he comes to see that the whole thing is about becoming uh, associated with this utterly socially shameful person, um, that's why he says he regards all of that as loss and, and he regards it as crap. Like, it's too bad our translations are not more explicit you know it's 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 like it's i regard all that as waste like literally human waste all say those words say it say it <laughs> dookie <laughs> it's a dr gg translation yes yes the gomba gombas version um gomba standard version uh and, and so so we begin the book by saying um, man, there there are these glaring issues, and and Paul interestingly faced these same social pressures, and you can see that in comparing his before and after. How would you? Well, I know how you would, but explain what you mean by cruciform, because you characterize Paul's ministry as cruciform after his conversion. What do you mean by that? What's that look like? Yeah, so uh, um, such a great word. But um, so Jesus's life is a life of, um, I think Michael Gorman talks about this best in, with reference to Philippians 2, 6 through 11. So Jesus, having all privileges from eternity past, uh, did not exploit those for his own gain, um, but rather self-emptied, like poured himself out. It doesn't mean, you know, emptied himself of being God, but that, that whole thing is a false path. He just, he expends himself. He, he spends himself, becomes uh, incarnate, goes to the absolute lowest place of total social shame and uh, dies on the cross. And so his life is a life of recognizing privilege, not exploiting privilege, uh, but, but uh, self-expenditure toward and in the direction of the cross. Yeah. And so when Paul talks about his own life, in the next in chapter three of Philippians, he talks about his life of recognizing all his privileges, recognizing that they're all crap, mm. um, and that they are keeping him from identifying with the life pursuit of Christ, which is to be having a life 
shaped by the cross or in the form of the cross mm. or, um, you know, completely claimed by the cross and shaped by the cross and having the values of the cross. So, yeah, cruciformity is one of these realities that is, is, um, is a delight to think about because one of the features of cruciformity is that uh, verses 6 through 8 of Philippians 2 is followed by verses 9 through 11, which has everything to do with because Jesus lived that kind of life, God highly exalted him. So the pathway to exaltation with Christ on the day of Christ is a life formed by and shaped by the cross. And also in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about how um, he says we daily have our, our lives, we carry about daily uh, the dying of Jesus so that we might experience the life of Jesus in our bodies. Mm. So God's presence, his resurrection presence in Christ is actually located on earth in spaces where lives and communities are cruciform. Okay. Now that, that we have to stop here and add exclamation points because <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the secret. That's right. the secret because no. uh, what we imagine is the enjoyment of resurrection power and resurrection presence are places where there are comfort and prestige and power and what we imagine as power or what we imagine as attractiveness and all that kind of stuff. But in Paul's theology, earthly power drives away uh, God's resurrection presence, but earthly weakness and service and cruciform uh, community practices invite god's resurrection power among us and that's the only way that it is experienced so god only pours out resurrection power where there are lives shaped by the cross oh that is such a big deal it's so upside down it is so upside down marva dawn one of my favorite books ever on weakness and tabernacling love it talks about um god has need of our strength or god has no need of our strength but needs our weakness uh, because that's where he tabernacles, right? Yeah. That's where Paul boasts. That's where Christ's presence is found, which is totally revolutionary. Yeah. Um, how does that? Let, let's let's pull forward just a little bit to say, okay, so how does that? How, what does cruciformity look like? Contemporary ministry dynamics. So if so is so for me, I come into a a, a mega church full of ego and giftedness and woundedness. And I'm in this mix where certain gifts are exalted and size churches matter. And um, you treat the staff as your employees. Uh, Some are high performing, some are low performing. You have budgets and finance committees and, you know, giving, giving absolutely matters because giving is, uh, allows you to accomplish a vision. I'm evaluated based on my performance. Um, right. I mean, this was, this is my world and I flourish in that world. I love this. I'm an achiever and performer. Give that to me all day because I can go, I can hide behind my competence, right. And not deal with my shame or if I fail, then I can just run into my, my shame story, which is where I'm most safe uh, huh. or most familiar. And yeah. uh, I mean, it was, it was just beautiful. And so I, I, I'm sitting there and there's nothing in there about self-expenditure. You need a platform. You need an audience. You preach on your books. Uh, when you have a book come out, make sure to preach on the book you've just written from the platform. Right? I mean, it's just that whole oh, yeah, machinery is the machinery of death. Yeah. 
I and think so, that that's what we've got to do is keep that reality before you that that all that stuff that feels so good is really the way of death. So what's cruciformity look like in comparison to that? Uh, yeah, cultivation, cultivation of authenticity. Mm. Um, yeah, the cross will want to claim um, it'll want to claim everything that we regard as strength. Um, mm. So uh, personal strengths which you will typically call upon to cover over your weakness. Totally. Um, cover over any kind of shame. It's strength finder, Tim. It's not weakness finder. <laughs> that's okay. right. Dude, that's the next book. Weakness finder? Weakness finder. I got to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> I can exploit that and go big. Yes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Let me build a platform using my weakness. It's beautiful. Oh, that's genius. That's going to be the one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to play with titles even as I speak here. <laughs> well, I'm just trying Turn to contrast. How do, you, how do you build a church on the cruciform of vision? Um, what are, what would, are some of the dynamics you embrace in contrast to the ones I was just mentioning? I would um, – I, I think that this would be a great thing to do uh, like if I was on a ministry team or like a leadership board or a pastoral staff or a, a head pastor, I mean, you know, these ways of structuring that just come right out of, you know, corporations. I think it'd be a great thing to, um, imagine, you know, spend a Saturday and whiteboard it and talk about what cruciform ministry would actually look like. And then, um, kind of talk about uh, what are the challenges in our, the way that our organization is structured, they keep us from doing that mm -hmm. or, or um, and even sort of talk about sketch a cruciform ministry and pay very close attention to our own thoughts. Um, because our, I don't think we attend to our own like bodies and thoughts and hearts as we have these discussions to really let our objections arise. Like, like what, like what kind of arguments would we use why we couldn't do that in our structure? Right. Uh, because I do believe that while many people that get into ministry are completely well motivated, the structure locks us in. Like right. if you have a large church and I'm talking like 300 to 500 people, or, I mean, that's, those, those are big churches. Those are, they, they become organizations. Typically you've got a building or you've got a budget, you've got payroll, mm -hmm. you've got insurance plans for staff. I mean, uh, you've got uh, youth yeah. pastors, you've got loans to pay off for going to Bible college. And totally. I mean, we're so locked in. I mean, money has us by the short and curlies and it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard for an organization to really flex into something that is service oriented. So I, I think it'd be great to just completely throw out ridiculous ideas that would seem so threatening mm. because the, the, the cross is the most threatening reality in the universe uh, because it calls us to just complete loss. So like why, what's keeping the pastoral staff from all getting full-time jobs and going, going to bivocational ministry? Because that would liberate, um, that would liberate the staff to really love the church and not do it because it's their job. Um, you know what's 
I think it'd be great to have those kind of questions. What, what's, what's keeping our church from, instead of having every other week, we just have uh, a sharing time where we, where we all talk about how our week was and we spent, instead of like a performance or like a, a music show or a lecture, mm-hmm. we just do something different. We change it up. What's keeping our community from doing, uh, you know, a couple months of investigation to find out what are the needs and desires of uh, the people in the community that are the bottom quarter as far as income goes, like in the surrounding, you know, three miles of our church building, three mile radius, what's the bottom uh, quarter income and what are their lives like? And how can we be a community that attends to them? Like, why wouldn't we want to do that? What are the reasons why we wouldn't do that stuff? And I think that the reasons why uh, would typically revolve around money and uh, (laughs) would typically revolve around wanting to have a kind of a community life or a kind of a community image that would draw people in um, to sort of increase our community's prestige. And I think that those would be the kinds of things that we should see that the cross wants to claim those very desires. The cross wants to claim that and reconfigure it mm-hmm. and give it and give them all back to us in a way that um, actually generate the dynamics of life among us rather than the dynamics of death. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of creativity. I think also a lot of our, um, I think a lot of staffs, Uh, should engage in discussions like this, but also realize that whenever, um, when when church communities make immediate pivots, that's not always the best move to make. Um, You know, when when a a big community sort of turns on a dime, people can get hurt. So, I mean, I think we have to make changes wisely. Mm -hmm. Um, But if at the day of Christ, the person um, that's going to be examining us was a person socially shamed and homeless? What does that say about our lives that are marked by prestige and comfort? Right. I mean, that, that's a re- you know, it, it's worth it to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's worth it. And then not only that, I I think it's worth thinking about. Um, I mean, I've I've been a part of a community like this before. It's so liberating to be outside of like a high performance model where where like sundays or you know or saturday night you know are just the for me we're always the climax of anxiety because it's like that's <laughs> where you've got to you've got Dude, to, that's so true both of you guys know how this is where it's like you know how you're being examined you're being looked at and you've got to yeah. keep the image up one more performance and just that's so poisonous yeah you've got to look like you have it together and you've got to come off well and you hope that on that Sunday, your kid does not have a meltdown or somebody doesn't ask a tough question about how things have been at home that week. Cause you can't show weakness. You can't yeah. show, you can't show cracks in the performance, mm. but it's so liberating to be part of a model where it's like, I'm not getting paid for this. Um, you know, if things <laughs> didn't come together this week. Uh, I think instead of a sermon, we're going to have a discussion. I'm going to read a chapter of this passage and let's just have some thoughts that we share on it for 15 minutes. Then I'm going to pray and we're done. Yeah. Cause I didn't, this week was crazy for me. Sorry. You know, Yeah. (laughs) you know, church could actually function according to its dominant metaphor in the new Testament, which is family. It's a family meeting. It's a family meal. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. But we've turned it into um, a production that's got to come off well, you know. And I mean, in a in a media slick era where we've been for the last 75, 80 years, that's a lot of pressure yeah. for people no, who don't absolutely. do this full time. And, you know, people that don't have the, you know, mega budgets to totally do nips and tucks and have <laughs> the nips sp- and the tucks, the <laughs> yeah. spiritual nips and tucks. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you talked a lot about, I was trying to find the, the section, but I couldn't find it with um, Paul continually leaning into like, both the theological and the social implications of the different of both being a sinner. And it's interesting that since we just finished Sermon on the Mount and Jesus was just turning everything upside down with how the church was operating then to watch the same things happen in Paul from a different, it's a different perspective, but it's a similar, like, or it's like a more embodied personal transformation to what Jesus was doing. So it's really interesting to watch that personified, I guess. I'm curious, like, so you talk about, like, it's hard for the church to turn on a dime for pastors to kind of embody this. While you are while you are in a position of teaching future pastors, are you like, is this, how, it, it, how, is, how does this implement itself into what you're, does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah. totally. I, um, I always have to sort of, check myself i just wonder if like uh our admissions people know what i'm actually saying in classes no they do They're... he did note noted noted that tim looked over his shoulder before he answered this question <laughs> i i love it we have um i love our community here obviously you know the things are promoted according to the you know the ideological climate of our time but i encourage students to consider um bivocational ministries um, and to think about, to, to notice very carefully the dynamics that are up and running in the larger culture that, that draw us all into a career kind of a mindset. Yeah. Um, I encourage our students not to think in terms of career mobility and to recognize the ways that American dreamism has taken over ministry conceptions. So it's like, you know, starter job, you know. Totally. Desirable job and then dream job. And it's like we think about church ministry positions in the very same way, like youth pastor, associate pastor, senior pastor. Yes. Um, But these are are idolatrous conceptions that are just really destructive. They come come out of um, capitalism and liberal liberal democracy. They don't come out of, um, you know, the vision of life in scripture. So I think it's important to talk about all these realities. In because you can't teach Paul without them, mm-hmm. and you can't talk about them without dude. Paul just all, all Paul cares about is getting us into heaven. So I don't know what you're talking about. Gombos. That's right, it's all about the spirit, not about the body, not yes. about the social body. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ernst Kaysman has this great quote that I'll get wrong right now, but he talked about how the, the history of the study of Paul is the story of the church's domestication of the apostle. Like we have, yeah, we've made him into one of us. We've made him into someone who just endorses everything that we say. (laughs) We've already adopted the mode of life. And then we use Bible. We fit Bible into that conception. We don't really let Jesus and Paul and the rest of the biblical writers reconfigure and unsettle stuff. Yeah. But I mean, that's part of the challenge of being in a seminary is that we are servants to the church 
But really, a seminary is a worldly, it's an organization of the world that plays by the rules of the world, like in terms of, you know, it's, it's got to be financially viable, like we have to stay yeah. afloat. So, yeah. um, but what I love about being at GRTS is that my colleagues and I are committed and our administration backs us up, which is very unusual. But we're committed to just speaking absolutely truthfully um, about all these realities. And the payoff is like a really life-giving environment, you know, where we, where we, although it's like, yeah, we try to be very honest about all that. We're invested in the world and, and you know, the financial model of the world, which sure. is. And your credentials. We're hypocrites. We just don't want pastors to be. Yeah. <laughs> but your credentialing in a world. It's so nice to carry that burden that values credentials that gift to the world um you have yeah it's it's we're all we're all twisted into this there's no no one yeah. stands above it yeah um, totally so like i can't get i can't be here at the seminary without having a phd like that's the credential that gets me in the door right but um we talk all the time about um like collegiality on our faculty um the like we just had uh, one of our colleagues who is uh, a staff member, not a faculty person, um, is leaving to take another job. And it's like the community has this ethos where the lines between faculty and staff are blurred. Like we're all friends and colleagues. And uh, the lines are intentionally blurred, really, between like faculty and students where we see ourselves as co-participants in the process of gaining biblical wisdom and uh, ministry skill. Like we're all co-participants. So mm -hmm. a lot of us, you know, my colleagues who are white men, especially we're very purposeful about calling ourselves by our first names. So, right. and not to, doctor, not professor. Yeah. And I don't, I don't have any of my degrees on my walls mm -hmm. um, because my, you know, the way that I posture myself socially around here is to indicate that I'm a partner. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a partner with my, with the people who are students here and i talk a lot about my fellow students and not like my students as if i'm like this sage on the stage but i have to say alternatively because our social environments uh put us each in different places um you know the ideologies that uh american evangelicalism have fallen into naturally center you guys and center me as white men mm -hmm. and it's no problem for me to be around here as a white man. The seminary was made for me to just feel completely at home, but it's a very different reality for my colleagues who are black men and for women of color and for women and for white women. And so uh, like when I refer to my colleagues um, uh, who are people of color, I routinely call them by their titles because that, that because the social situation um, displaces them at the center, I intentionally try to place them at the center. Mm. Um, and I, you know, encourage uh, students to call them by their titles, to give them, um, to, to pay them that respect that culture doesn't give them. Mm. So I think being very aware of how culture values each of us in, a, in our embodied realities will configure for us how we look at each other and treat each other um, in a cross-shaped manner. Mm. Because the cross is always bringing love, and this is what Mary says, you know, the the, the the high are being brought low and the low are being elevated. And that's not to like reverse um, social locations so that they get vengeance. It's to bring us to places where we are partners. So the question in kingdom communities is always, how do we, how do we embody being partners mm. 
So in churches, can you really have titles of elevation over each other? Right. If, if Paul, the great apostle, only has co-laborers, how in churches can we have dynamics of elevation? Right. Oh, but we I think do. that's just something that we really need to revisit. Yes, yes. Staff versus lay leaders. Yeah, or senior, senior, senior pastor, senior, executive yeah. pastor, totally. associate. <laughs> right. You know, no, it's I mean, all true. All true. A couple more things, Tim, before we close. One is one of the one of the very interesting uh, points that you bring out is that Paul situates the church in in cosmically contested space. And that when we choose as pastors to engage in ministry modes that are not cruciform, there's a bigger cost for that than just our institutions being unhealthy. Oh yeah. I'd love to hear your, I'd love to hear more along those lines. Yeah. This was like, I thought this was, this was the biggest challenge to kind of pull off in writing because it's like, it's so foreign to our way of thinking, but in Paul's view of the, of reality, he only thinks in terms of cosmic reality. So he's always looking at community life in terms of the, the larger cosmic drama that's unfolding. And for Paul, uh, we're stuck here in the present evil age. And after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, these cosmic entities, sin and death and Satan and flesh, they all kind of hijacked God's good world and hold it enslaved. And these cosmic powers like completely had a lockdown enslaving grip on all of creation, ensuring that humans walked in ways of death before Christ came. And th those were manifest in like power seeking, selfishness, uh, hoarding, oppressing, violence, uh, hierarchies, you know, racism, sexism, everything, all, all the ways of life that are degrading and that ruin human life and prevent us from experiencing God's order of flourishing at the cross. God breaks their enslaving grip over his world and liberates humans and forms these communities that are not enslaved to these cosmic entities, but are filled with this new cosmic presence by the Holy spirit. That is the, the resurrection presence and power of God in Christ. And so Paul sees that it's absolutely critical for church communities to have lives and practices shaped by the cross. So service, hospitality, love for one another, mm -hmm. um, denying ourselves, uh, receiving the, you know, the good gifts that other people have to give us and functioning in communities as gifts to one another, not elevating ourselves over others, not oppressing, not excluding. And when we behave in these ways <laughs> and when we don't seek power or prestige or elevation, it's like we are stirring up among us the resurrection presence and power of God, which brings healing to all of us and which binds us together more strongly. It's like, it's like um, our community lives are filled with like the kerosene air of God's Holy Spirit. And we're all like, you know, lighting matches or like, you know, sparks fly whenever we do acts of charity and love and they just explode the air that um that surrounds us all so that it's actually that's a that's maybe a bad metaphor but <laughs> it's not destructive we don't get our hair singed off it's uh it's it results in blessing but 
when we actually gossip or exclude or oppress or seek our own, or even, or even when we think that we're bringing about something good in the community and we do it through power or force, yeah. we, are, we drive away God's resurrection presence and we actually, see, we actually become tools in the hands of the powers of sin and death to destroy God's community. And which is interesting because Paul talks about this in Galatians. I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, but he talks about his former pursuit made him an enemy of God. Mm. And when we participate in our church communities through force or self-seeking or elevating our agenda over others, even if, especially if we think that it's like a godly agenda, we become enemies of God. Like our, our ministry participation modes are everything, not the ends. Yeah. The ends are not everything. Yeah. Because we will all say that we're trying to bring about God's purposes, but our ministry mode always has to be shaped by the cross. And that's tricky because we will always tell ourselves we're just trying to bring about God's best in other people's lives. You know what I mean? Like if I, I was talking with somebody this last week, you know, if I really love them, I'll confront their sin, right? I'm like, right. Huh? I don't know. You know, I mean, that seemed like there were some Pharisees really eager to do that kind of stuff on the pages of the Gospels. I'm not sure that's the wisest move. So, um, But Paul does that. Yeah, mostly the most of the sins that he's confronting in, in his letters are sins of power moves that are always made with like Bible verses attached to them. Mm. Um, they're, you know, typically when people do make these moves of power, they situate themselves or their group or their agenda as the godly agenda or the godly group. And if the other group, if the other group, the ungodly group would just adopt our agenda or get on our side, then God's purposes would be produced. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, this is why Paul situates himself on that other side like he's the sinner like mm -hmm. so he's the ungodly he's the unrighteous he's the felon he's the outcast he's the one who's lowest on the social uh totem pole he's not he's not the godly one he's not the one who's sure. on the inside but let me but but hold, on, that but hold on a second hold yeah. on a second tim, tim and i love you for this i love you that an uncircumcised philistine like myself that's a metaphor. Can can ask questions, um, but I look at Paul's comments about the immoral, obviously in First uh, Corinthians five, yeah. uh, the immoral brother, and there is a there is an authority he claims there um, that he has already judged the person. So just square that with cruciformity, right? Because and you deal with this at the end of the book, and I love that. Because you're not saying, well, we're just passive doormats. No, 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 never. Um, and and you have a chapter about that, which is huge. But but reconcile that, Paul, because I think some, uh, particularly of a reform persuasion, will be, well, no, Paul's calling out sin all the time. He's not, you know, he's not. Um, uh, and, and in this case, he's calling for the forceful ejection of somebody from the community. Um, how does that all square? Yeah, I... Uh... It seems to me that there's got to be some kind of, I got to go back and look at Thistleton on this. He brings a lot of this out in First Corinthians. A lot of the sins that are being committed in Corinth uh, have to do with some kind of like exploitation and oppression and some totally. kind of class elevation. Totally. The, the, um, the Lord's Supper, for sure. 
Yeah. The favorites. And I'm trying to think through, uh, I just was, I need to go back and look at First Corinthians 5 and the wording. Yeah, no worries. Um, but I think that there's, there's something about that dynamic that we too easily see in terms of force or in terms of, um, you know, elevation, like uh, taking a place of authority and doing some kind of like condemning. Right. I, I rather think that it's like um, sort of cruciform nerve or like insistence. So taking our place as a cross-shaped community and insisting on that as a people that don't look out for their own needs and desires or even like, uh, and put on the cross their own sinful desires and inviting other people to participate in our community on those same terms. And if people, if there are people that don't, um, that sort of uh, step away from that posture and become self-seeking, the cross-shaped community has to have the cruciform nerve to call people to sort of retake their position shaped by the cross. Mm. And if they will not do that, the cruciform community, and this is part of the cruciform responsible care, um, you know, leadership has to uh, sort of rally the community to see that this person has left their place on the cross and therefore has surrendered um, the joy and delight of being a community member. Mm. Uh so yeah, I, th I think it's, I'd rather put it in terms of like cruciform nerve rather than like um, taking a plate, like, like when the stakes get really high, then leadership can get off their cross and do some condemning. Uh, I yeah. see it. I see it as like remaining on the cross, crucifying our own fears of addressing a situation like that, crucifying our own guarantee of a good outcome in any kind of a confrontation, um, but calling people to to get to return to the cross if they become self-seeking and if they don't respond to those calls the grievous responsibility of a community will have to be to put that person outside the community until they see the promise of retaking their position um on the cross along with the rest of the cruciform community right boy that and that so good in theory oh it's I've, brutal i've hardly i've hardly ever seen that it can happen i haven't yeah i've seen it I've seen it very rarely tried like three or four times, but it, yeah. it, it bears great fruit because if you approach situations of conflict, which we always do from places of strength, right. And you will end up cornering somebody or you end right. up condemning, or you end up putting somebody's back against the wall. Um, you, you typically imagine entering a situation of conflict by looking around at all the leverage that you have that you can use against a person. Yeah, Instead yeah. of like approaching a person right, from right. absolute weakness, giving up all leverage at the start and adopting a posture of invitation, um, because then you will, you will open yourself up to being hurt. And, but you also, what the, what's so important about that is if you approach a situation of conflict from a place of strength, you, you eliminate the possibility that God can show up to redeem. But if you approach a conflict situation from a place of weakness, um, you clear space for God to show up. Mm. And, and also that's your strongest self. Like it's so important to keep this in mind. In second Corinthians 12, Paul does not say, I was Come joking on, with somebody. I was Come joking on. about this recently because I think that if I said to you in second Corinthians 12, Paul says, when I am weak, then God is strong. I think most people would assume that's what Paul says. Right. 
But he says, when I am weak, I am strong. Mm. So we show up with our best self when we show up with our cruciform self mm. um, because we marginalize, we, we bring forward our, our um, we're not afraid of our weakness and we're, we're, we're not putting up our armor. Yeah. And we, we, by doing that, we invite other people to, to participate in a conflict situation from their best self. Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, we, we give, we allow resurrection power to enter in and bring about restoration and healing. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it rarely. Usually those meetings have been long and painful, <laughs> but at the end they, I mean, I remember one situation where an, an hour in, I thought it's over. Like this is we're we're we have brought, we brought our knives to this fight. Mm. And I'll never forget about an hour in, I had a friend. Um, I mean, he just, this is so unusual. He just said, he took a total step of vulnerability and just said, okay, I think I'm hearing you and I think I'm wrong, but I, and I don't feel good right now, but I, I think I need to hear what you're saying. Mm. And that, that melted everybody. Like everybody rushed in to like sh give each other deference. And it was like, we all, I mean, people cried and embraced and like made resolutions to, um, to, to change things. And we did like people, um, change the way they were participating in a certain ministry. It was awesome, wow. but that's yeah. rare. Yeah. We yeah. usually, we just leave a church or right. we just, you know, yeah. fire somebody or, you know, whatever, or denounce totally. somebody. That's a lot easier. Yeah. Oh, Timothy, this is so good. My goodness. And I so you. appreciate you guys. I, I always love hanging out. It's so fun. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Tim Stafford, any last thoughts? No, I'd love to do a part two sequel because I think the cosmological conversation is we do a lot of like the kind of the um, or lately, I guess, with the Sermon on the Mount, it feels like we're doing a lot of like, like the practicality of the church and the practicality of ministry and the practicality of like humble, you know, a, a humble nature and whatnot. We don't. But the cosmological stuff is kind of interesting and, and is not talked about as much you know, the spiritual things that are at play. I think we had that conversation sometimes off mic and, um, and it's always kind of like a confrontational conversation because some people don't want to have any conversation about spiritual, a spiritual nature at play, like spiritual forces at play in what we're doing. Yeah. Um, what, you know, and then there's people that are like overly spiritual warfare, like everything is so, but I, I think it's interesting. Yeah, and I know you spent some time on that in here. It would be interesting to do like a follow-up oh, yeah. that's really based in the in the cosmos. <laughs> yeah, would love it. Well, for for those of you interested, it, it, as a a step in that direction, uh, Tim Gombas hosts Faith Improvised, a podcast you can find at your favorite podcast provider. Definitely not Amazon, though. And um, <laughs> and it's a joke if you've listened to the podcast. The Beast. Um, they're the manifestation of everything yes. that's wrong in the cosmos <laughs> anyway tim did a whole episode <laughs> on the powers and principalities that is an excellent excellent overview and summary that's not oversimplified but really good but accessible uh, about the powers and principalities and the way they are conceived of in the scriptures so that really is worth your time because it's far different from the this present darkness 
Neil Anderson kind of <laughs> spiritual warfare stuff I, I grew up with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, really, really different. And, and it, it puts into context why my moral struggles are, are not, they're not transgressions of a, an arbitrary law, but they're parts of a web that that introduces or furthers the perpetuate and perpetuates the cycles of destruction yeah um at a cosmic level are you saying that our prayers do not charge angels batteries in their war against the demonic presence in small towns who's to say <laughs> wasn't that the premise of Peretti's book the oh i don't know straper put it best <laughs> to hell with the devil. So that's all, Dude, that's we, all we are calling on all the Christian <laughs> pop cultural realities, man. The best. Oh well, Tim, thank you, dude. We're hey, you guys do... are the best. Thank you. I love it. Always you're fun to hang best. out. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation. The Vox Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxpodcast. You can also engage with the hosts on social media at facebook.com backslash voxpodcast, on Instagram at voxpodcast and on Twitter, at Mike Erie. Thank you for walking this road with us.